1997, Beverly Tatum wrote a much-talked-about book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria?, and other conversations about race. This is a conversation that Jay and I have had a lot. Growing up in Houston, my lunchtime experience fits what she described. The black kids sit at one table, the Hispanics sat at another table, and the white kids at another. But Jay has always argued that his experience is a little different, especially since he's worked in food service for the last two decades. Like a lot of things, I just think socioeconomic realities in class break that generalization down. For example, the food service industry is really diverse, and you tend to bond with the people working in the same area as you. But particularly in the environment where I'm in, where we're serving a very wealthy clientele, there's this, I don't know, like call it an unspoken alliance that's the byproduct of a very mild form of class warfare. It's sort of this us versus them mentality that exists. I mean, think about it. Regardless of whether we're servers, cooks, black, white, Hispanic, we all enter through the same door. I'd call them the servants' quarters. <laughs> we all work the same miserable hours, and many of us all face similar economic challenges. But then on the other hand, I remember grabbing some food at the hospital cafeteria after my wife gave birth to her son. This is maybe 10 years ago. And I'm looking around, and the tables appear to be broken down by race. If you're going by what it looked like. So you had some tables of blacks, tables of Hispanics, and tables of whites but they were all wearing different uniforms. So you had orderlies, custodians, nurses, and EMTs, plainclothes folks, all sitting together based on race. There was only one table I noticed where there was more, quote, diversity, so to speak, and it was the doctor's table. So that just got me thinking, maybe class can cause more division depending on where you fall financially. It's interesting that you say that because the research doesn't really support that. For one, only about five or six percent of doctors in the U.S. are African-Americans. And if you look at something like housing in the U.S., for example, the suburban middle class is actually where we see significantly increasing levels of diversity. There are a lot of factors that contribute to this reality, um, but I agree that shared experiences are a bridge between people of different races. Right. Um, and even in high school, I had a sense that that some shared interests like band or JROTC or sports transcended that racial divide. And it seems like the Catholic Church should be able to do this too, which is why I found Lewis's experience at Catholic grade school in St. Louis particularly interesting. My experience in elementary school became such an important thing for me. Catholic school was able to create this like certain milieu, which it has continued to do even to this day, that same Catholic school. And now it's actually more African-American than it was in terms of the percentage of African-Americans that attend that school. So they really strove to create this racially inclusive environment that was definitely um, different, you know, than the kind of, you know, community experience that you may have in a different type of school. It was this like intimate, real relationship between families of different ethnic backgrounds. And it wasn't really programmatic like it wasn't like there was a racial harmony program it was like all just like racial harmony programming in a way like just come to the picnic like go to this come to this be a part of this community and i mean really that's what it was it was fostered through intentional relationship with individual families and people and that's not to say that there was absolutely no challenges or you know it wasn't like this utopian society but even to this day you know the families. Um, are still friends with people, and there are people across 
uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, racial backgrounds in a really special way. You know, now even some of these people that I went to school with, you know, that were almost like a family to me are more friends with my wife than they are with me. Um, so there was this nucleus there, this this Catholic milieu that really contributed to this whole environment. We had this like shared identity and that shared Catholic formation was like a deep catechesis, right? And it, this shared experience is what really contributed to our shared identity. Even the people had different backgrounds, even people had different religions. And that's what I think Catholic education really contributes to this really community experience of, of families that are part of this parish community, a part of the school community. I'm sure this isn't everyone's experience of the Catholic schools. We keep saying this, Lewis is just speaking for himself and not for every black Catholic. But I was encouraged to hear his experience as a kid in school was so positive. Actually, at one point I was talking to a woman um, who used to help to like watch the class. She was also like a recess monitor um, kind of person, but she also helped to watch me outside of school and watched a lot of kids. Um, like my mom had to work and stuff like that. And so she's still an important part of my life to this day. Basically, she was like my grandmother. And we were having a conversation and just talking about the fact that, you know, a lot of the kids, you know, went on and some of them don't even practice religion to this day. And she was like, well, it's okay because everyone still wanted to go and help and do a, some type of vocation where they were helping others. Like, for example, um, there are a lot of people who wanted to be police officers, firefighters. It was this very service-oriented mentality that existed. Social workers, many other things, probation. And I mean, some people would often maybe have this service orientation anyway, but there was something there in that culture that really fostered this idea of serving, of you know, being a, a presence, a light in the community, being salt and light in the community in some way. And even when people, you know, didn't necessarily keep that, uh, you know, religious catechesis uh, in that specific way, this service orientation still remained. And in a way that speaks to the, and some of these people were never Catholic to begin with. And so some of that speaks to the power of the Catholic school and the Catholic school milieu. And what that can do for racial harmony, well, to this day, you know, we're almost like this family that's, that's scattered across, you know, the, actually the whole United States. Many people went to Jesuit volunteer corps. Some people are teaching in inner city schools, you know, and doing all these different dynamic service oriented things. And really in that little community was fostered this spirit of, of racial togetherness in a community where, you know, right outside the walls necessarily of that parish, if you will, it was not the same. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is The Ark and the Dove a podcast about faith, resilience, and hope in the Black Catholic community in Baltimore. In this episode, we focus on St. Francis Academy in Baltimore. Here's Jay Lampard. St. Francis Academy is a Catholic school on East Chase Street between Green Mountain and Brentwood. If you're not familiar with Baltimore, it's definitely not the best neighborhood. If you look across the street, you'll see a block of abandoned row homes. And the school actually backs up to the Baltimore City Jail. Really, I mean, um, the neighborhood looks scarier than it is, you know. And not to say that it's a safe neighborhood, but there's two factors. One is, you know, with the prison, all the dangerous people are locked up, you know. So, uh, it's, you know, it's really not that, that, that dangerous. And then all the cars are owned by law enforcement officers who are parked around. So there's a way that the school feels protected. But... This is Deacon Curtis Turner. He's been the principal at St. Francis Academy since 2008. He's also a deacon who serves at St. Bernardine's Church sometimes, the church we told you about in the last episode. 
He and I met up just outside the blue wooden door of the school one morning, just as classes were about to begin. This is very much sacred ground, you know, um, that we're on the corner of Chase and Greenmount. There's an unwritten rule that on the other side of Greenmount, you do what you do. But you're not allowed over here because this is holy ground. This is St. Francis Academy. Hey, Sean, how you doing? Good, you good? Yes, sir. All right. Um, you know, that this is kind of sacred ground. So most of the activity stays a good block away from the school. You know, there's even, there is a well-known gang in the area that knows they're not allowed to approach a St. Francis kid. If they see a St. Francis uniform, they're off limits for recruitment or anything else. So, in many ways, St. Francis Academy tells the story of the Black Catholic Church. Yeah, kinda, you know, Founded in 1828 by Mother Mary Lang, the Academy is not just the oldest black school in the Archdiocese, they're also the oldest operating Catholic school in the diocese at all. I mean, here's the neat thing about St. Francis. Someone asked me, well, what do you do to celebrate Black History or Black Catholic History Month? And I said, we are Black Catholic History. Like, we, don't, we don't have to celebrate it. We live it every single day. And, and when you work here, where Mother Lang actually lived, died, and prayed, you're part of the history. We don't have to study it. We just have to live out her charism. If you're not familiar with the name Mother Mary Lang, it's okay. She doesn't get the attention she deserves. But that won't likely be the case for much longer, since Mother Lang happens to be one of the six African Americans on the path to sainthood. She was declared venerable by the church on the very day we were working uh, on the script. Yeah, Mother, Mother Lang is a candidate for sainthood, and, and someone asked me, are there any miracles in her name? And I jokingly said, I made payroll. <laughs> you know? Deacon Curtis took me on a tour of the school that included where Mother Mary Lang lived. <laughs> so this is, uh, again, next to the chapel. And only because the Eucharist is present in the chapel, this is the second most sacred room in the school, which is Mother Lang's room. Almost everything in that corner is preserved exactly the way it was. Mother Mary Lang's bed and night table are preserved on the second floor of St. Francis, now sandwiched between the chapel and a classroom used to teach math and lit. So she, Mother Lang didn't have her own room. She had her own corner. But the whole second floor would have resembled that true dormitory with only privacy they may have had or the curtains. Almost everything in that corner is preserved exactly the way it was you know, when, she, when she died. So we know that she actually walked on those floorboards. Um, but it was to show you what it was like when she, when she died um, and when she lived. Mother Mary Lang was a pioneer, a deeply spiritual and courageous woman of action who was way ahead of her time. Yeah, it's often said that she had four strikes against her. She was black, she was a woman, she was an immigrant, and she was Catholic. And, you know, in the early 1800s, none of those things were an advantage in the United States. Yet her faith persevered to the point where, you know, one of my kids goes, well, I'm taking algebra next period because of her. You know, it's like that, that's very true. In the 1800s, there was no educational institutions for people of color. It was not allowed. What was allowed for persons of color was catechism or faith education. Mother Mary Lang knew that, as well as the importance of having an education. So she taught students how to read by teaching them to read the Bible, which laid the groundwork for learning other subjects. One of the things that, that was um, questionable about, about educating people of color in the early 1800s was whether you should do it or not. So the idea is that if you're teaching them about the faith, it was fine, but Mother Lang immediately knew that I can't teach them about the faith without teaching them about the Holy Scripture. Yeah, so that's the Bible. And so as long as they were learning to read the Bible, they were okay, so to speak. Um, yeah, and it's the foundation of whatever 
whatever our faith is. It's funny because I've heard that criticism before that, you know, you don't know your Bible. And, you know, I kind of jokingly go, actually, we kind of wrote the thing, you know. <laughs> it's kinda, and we know it really well. It was Mother Mary Lang's bravery and ingenuity that put St. Francis Academy on the map as not only the oldest Catholic school in the diocese, but the oldest African-American educational institution in the United States. Now, when most people hear the name St. Francis, they think about the guy in the garden, surrounded by animals, with a chrome dome up top and the burlap tunic wrapped around his waist. But St. Francis Academy isn't named after that Francis. It's named after a woman, St. Francis of Rome, who is one of the patron saints of the Oblate Sisters. She was a laywoman in the 15th century who devoted her life to the poor and founded a lay community devoted to just that. Uh, we're, we're spelled with an E because we're named after a woman. And I laugh because I love that statue of her because she's standing there with a rosary, a Bible, and a small bag of money, and that's pretty much what I run the school off. You know, a rosary, a Bible, and a really small bag of money. <laughs> Up until eighth grade, I attended an old Catholic school in New York. And for me, they were the only positive and productive school years of my life. So walking the halls of St. Francis Academy was a nostalgic experience for me. You could just smell it in the air and feel it in the classrooms. It had that old Catholic school feel, partly frozen in time, but with just a touch of modern flair, including an updated cafeteria. This is, um, this is kind of our historic hallway. Uh, the, the archives is officially at the Mother House in Catonsville. But, um, but there is so much rich history the there. Items were Parts of the school feel like a museum, so the minus the velvet features. ropes, an overpriced gift shop in the lobby. A couple things that really, my favorite ones are this. This is the, uh, the prospectus of the school in the early 1800s, where you can see the tuition. This is boarding and tuition was approximately $4 a month, you know, which is amazing. And you think about the sacrifice that was you know, nearly two centuries ago. Um, Today, the school yeah, operates on a $2.9 million annual budget. Only 35% of that is generated from tuition. And tuition is currently $12,100, which is still the most affordable of any Catholic school in the area. There's a way in which St. Francis Academy is really living on a prayer. In reality, our financial ledger doesn't make sense from a secular point of view. We're always on the edge. Again, we've had a board member go, well, why don't we just raise tuition 3000 a year? And again, that would make the ledger look nicer, but we know deep down that's not what God wanted us to do. So that we will operate largely on faith moving forward. And, and there have been some very scary times financially um, where you didn't know what was going to happen. But one day, I forgot what major project we needed, but it was costing a lot of money. I knew we didn't have it. I'm walking around all distressed. I'm pulling out my list of people that I could call and maybe beg some money for. And one teacher said, you know, Deacon, you forgot the source of our goodness isn't those donors. It's Christ himself. Yeah. And, and I think when you don't have money like us, we are forced to rely on the true source of our goodness is Christ. When you got a ton of money, you can kind of forget that he's the source of that goodness. And so I, um, I, you know, I, I find our poverty a blessing at times. And I, you know, I tell folks, I don't want to be a broke school, but I don't mind being poor. Yeah, and, and I think we're called to be a poor school. St. Francis Academy has 210 students and employs a staff of 27, two of whom are trained psychologists who coordinate the school's mental health support program full-time. You know, we don't make a difference between a good college and a bad college. We, we, we're like life and death, you know, for these kids. It's salvation or eternal damnation. I mean, that's how 
high the stakes are here on any given day. What's really striking is the level of care and attention that each student receives at St. Francis Academy. Our kids come into this building bearing really large crosses, and sometimes their first instinct is to throw it at the first person they love, which is one of their teachers. We've learned not to react negatively to it, but to actually be very Simon-like and help bear that cross. And most of the time we're successful. Even when we're not successful and the kid leaves the community, we know that we've had an impact on them. Most of the financial support comes from partnerships and private donations. I should mention that although St. Francis Academy is in the Baltimore Archdiocese, it's technically not a diocesan school, meaning that it's not primarily supported by the diocese itself. They find creative ways to fund resources for their students. So Under Armour helped us renovate the building. Uh, Coach Dinez, who you met upstairs, we knew he was a trained chef. We said, do you want to take this over? And now with partnerships with, uh, like the Tessa Mays Foundation, with Whole Foods, our kids get excellent meals. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's the only school I've ever been in. I've been doing, I've been teaching or being an administrator for 27 years. First year of my life, if you ask a kid, how's the food, they won't complain about it. They actually literally say, it's fantastic. Because the nutrition is important and it's not, it's healthy food. I mean, we're not feeding them junk. You know, that's fresh vegetables, it's seasoned perfectly. It, it, Coach Dinez will give impromptu cooking lessons because the kids are like, this is a salad, why does it taste so great? And he's like, well, let me show you. You know, this is how you season it. And then, you know, they'll take some stuff home and teach their parents how to do it. I mean, it's, it's really, really great stuff. So feeding them, I mean, part of security is food security. You know, I mean, you want, you want bodily security. You want to be, have a safe place to sleep. But you also want food security. Like, can I eat today? And it's just it's impossible to do anything when you're hungry. On top of all this, St. Francis also manages to provide dormitory housing for 40 of its students. Several students have parents who are facing several challenges. Some might be incarcerated. Some may have died. This means that students need a high degree of care from staff at St. Francis to succeed in school. I always say a roof over their head, food on the table, and love. Tough or uh, easy love, you know, nurturing love. Here at St. Francis, you know, we've created that environment. And there's some young people that don't have one of the three, two out of three, maybe none of the three. The student housing program is overseen by Coach Masai Helmerium. So my, my name is Masai Helmerium. I'm the current head coach at St. Francis Academy football program. So we here, we create a purpose. We find a way to bridge the gap and educate and arm and then deploy to do the Lord's work. We have spiritual, mental, and physical development. You know, most people from athletics or to anything, the mental is academics and then athletics and the spiritual is probably swept under the carpet, even if they call themselves a, a, a religious school. Ours is truly about spiritual development. We try to allow God to be able to infuse himself in us to educate our children to understand who they can be for the world, who they can be for themselves, who they can be for God, more importantly, and their families. And we talk about generational wealth. Wealth doesn't just see money, it's all about knowledge. You empower a young person, then you're talking about changing their generational wealth. Coach Masai is a super cool down-to-earth guy. I've met with him several times. I don't follow sports at all, and long before I had the recorder on, every time we talk, it felt like two friends who were catching up and just picking up where the conversation left off. He has a knack for making you feel as if you've known each other for years. It's a gift. And it's just one of the many qualities that makes him a great coach. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in the fact that Christ died on the cross for me and for anyone else to be able to absolve us of our sin. But Christianity is really an important part of 
who I am. It's everything for me. If you would reflect back, as I reflect myself, it was definitely spiritual that brought me to this beautiful building and to be able to carry on the mission that Elizabeth Mother Mary Lang had. At the time of this interview, Coach Masai had been at St. Francis Academy for 11 years. He was hired as football coach back in 2010. When he arrived, the football team, the Panthers, were terrible. They were 1-39 in and lost 33 consecutive games in a row. They would lose by an average of 60 to 70 points per game. They were so bad, they became everybody's homecoming match. And if you know football, if you know sports, when somebody schedules you for homecoming, that means that they plan on having an easy win against you. Then, things began to take a turn. I, I came here in 2011, humble beginnings, lost the first two games by combined 80. Then we had a miracle, week three, the, the first year I was the head coach. We won, we were in the lowest conference, C conference, so we were nobody's formidable opponent. I told you we were homecoming for everybody. Arguably, one of the factors that contributed to their poor performance was a lack of resources. As I mentioned earlier, St. Francis is not an archdiocesan school. This means their funding comes from donors and grants, and the facilities are not exactly in line with what some of the other private and Catholic schools in Baltimore have, including a football field to practice on. Yeah, I mean, it's a Catholic school. It's not an archdiocesan school, but who gives a shit? Excuse my French, Jesus. But who gives a we're not given any credit for charging such low tuition and able to make it work. This is Jim Griffith. His son played quarterback for the team in 2016, and he's stuck around ever since to help coach Masai. Jim's not on the payroll at St. Francis Academy, but describes himself as the operations guy for the football team, reserving fields throughout the city and making sure there is water for practice, finding hotels for traveling games, things like that. But it's not just the football team that Jim helps with. When things break into student storms, Jim sees that they are fixed. He's also not afraid to speak his mind about the league that the school plays in, the Maryland Interscholastic Athlete Association, or the MIAA for short. The thing of it is, is that uh, St. Francis, we don't even have a field to practice in where all the MIA other schools have fields at their schools and so forth to practice in. And I have to sit there, because I do the phone calling, I have to call Patterson Park to see if the guy will let us practice after the school, okay, at a field. Uh, Dunbar High School won't let us because they just won't let us. And their, their field was donated by Under Armour. So I call the YMCA, who lets us use the field out of the graces of their heart up 33rd Street, but it's not a football field. So we have to literally go out, beg, plead, just to practice places, because we don't have a field. The St. Francis football program began in 2008 with an initial $60,000 donation from a man by the name of Biff Pogey, a Baltimore native who made his fortune as an investment fund manager. At the time, he was head football coach for Gilman, another Catholic school in North Baltimore with a powerhouse football team. But Biff had a deep conviction and a heart for the young black youth in the city and continued making contributions to help the St. Francis football program. But it wasn't just football. When times got tough at St. Francis, Biff was always willing to take out his checkbook, like in 2010 when the economy threatened to close the school. He's also underwritten tuition for 45 St. Francis students, paid for SAT prep classes, and has supplemented full-time teacher salaries. Then, in 2015 into 2016, Biff served as head coach for St. Francis Academy, with Masai staying as assistant coach. Biff did it entirely for free. So in 2017, the St. Francis Panthers rose out of the ashes, going from being one of the worst teams in the league 
to a national sensation. How about that St. Francis Academy? This is what, their 20th game of the year so far. They have a big game this weekend. It's going to be on national TV. Top programs in the country, St. Francis coming across country to meet one of the most successful high school programs in the country. Biff and Masai were an unstoppable duo. Their losing streak turned into one victory. After another. And another. And another. Biff Bogey and company get this national tour off with a bang. 49-13 win. They finished the 2017 season with a 13-0 record and ranked number four in the nation, outscoring their MIAA opponents 242 to 50. And this year, the Panthers football team went undefeated 13-0, winning the MIAA A-Conference Championship. It's the quintessential all-American rags to riches sports idol. St. Francis ends it with a bang. Only this story doesn't have such a happy ending. Now comes the story that's been covered by ESPN, The Washington Post, and others. In January of 2018, Loyola, another prominent school in the MIAA, which lost to St. Francis 65-0, by the way, withdrew its football program from the league due to, quote, size and athletic disparity, unquote. Then in May of 2018, another school, Mount St. Joseph, said they would no longer play the Panthers due to, quote, safety concerns. Then other schools followed, Calvert Hall, McDonough, even Biff Pogey's former school, Gilman, all refused to play St. Francis, citing player safety concerns. This, despite no clear record or documentation that their players suffered any more injuries playing against the Panthers than any other team. The most successful high school football teams in the country. They're also in the middle of an athletic controversy here in Baltimore. Yeah, nobody wants to play St. Francis Academy. They were forced to play an independent schedule against teams from the U.S. and Canada after every team in the Maryland Interscholastic Athletic Association forfeited their games against St. Francis, citing player safety. Again, principal of St. Francis Academy, Deacon Curtis Turner. So, so the, the narrative had a lot of falsehoods in it. And again, they think many of them cited safety as the issue, but statistically, you know, there was no greater danger in terms of game time injury playing us than any other team, any other sport at any other time. It just, just wasn't true. The story made national news. In 2020, HBO ran a series on the team titled The Cost of Winning. I reached out to several people on the team and those who were close to the story, and very few people were willing to speak out on the record about what actually happened. Like, I have no problem talking about that time period and, and what happened. The unfortunate piece is nothing that can be said changes it. This is Donald Davis. He was a coach on an opposing team at the time, and one of the few people who would speak out on the record regarding the controversy surrounding the MIAA. One of the major contentions that built the narrative of a disparity of talent was that St. Francis was building a powerhouse team by recruiting kids from other schools outside of Baltimore and even the state, giving them an unfair advantage. Bring in the strongest and the fastest, and the team becomes, quote, dangerous. So there's a couple myths to that narrative. Deacon Curtis. First of all, the majority of our football team still was from the metropolitan Baltimore area. Um, second of all, we're a boarding school, just like any other boarding school in Baltimore, like, say, a McDonough. Of course, kids don't necessarily live in Baltimore. But the irony was that well over half of our boarding students actually were from Baltimore City, but they just were in such awful neighborhoods and awful environments that, you know, they might live three miles away, but they had the stability they needed 
you know, to be here. And then the other thing was that our coach at the time, Biff Poggi, had been at Gilman for 19, 20 years and had done the exact same thing. And Gilman football dominated the MIAA for years. And, you know, no one could beat Gilman. And I can't remember the exact stats, but he won, say, like 16 out of 19 championships you know, in the past couple of decades. And no one said a word. Yeah, you know, he does the same thing here. And everybody loses their minds. Again, Coach Masai. You know, that, that language about kids being too big and all that, that, that's hogwash. I mean, Spalding this year, this past current season, was 10-0. and And I witnessed at least three games where they won by 50. Should they stop playing these teams? Are they endangering other kids? It's funny when they say endangering kids because you hear stories about terrible things that happen on the football field. And I can't recall one story about a student from an opposing team getting injured as a result of a St. Francis Academy player. There is not. You can't think of one uh, uh, because there isn't one. Well, I've heard people speak off the record about this, but if it's not about player safety, what do you suppose is really going on here? Oh, I, I'm, I will go on record. It's because we are a black school. We are defenseless. We're an institution that educates predominantly African-American students, and we can't sugarcoat it anymore. Um, we're, we're, we're pursuing an opportunity to be able to address them legally because there's no other scenario that you can explain this to. So, yes, it's because we're black school. And, and I say it on the record, and I have absolutely zero reason not to say it because you have to give me a reason. You have to give me a rhyme or reason. You have to give me one the rule we broke, one advantage we have outside of not having buildings, not having a field of our own, not having a locker room, all the things that they have two or three times. So who really has the advantage? If you want to really cry wolf, they do. But we'll wait and see. I don't know about you, but life is not easy every day I get up out of bed. There's days that I have to use willpower to get through the day because I know it's going to be a tough day and I might not win that day. So what, guess what sports is? You're not guaranteed. That's why you compete. It's literally, whether it be on the basketball court, tennis court, on a football field, um, you have to compete. And then you might win or you might lose. That's why you play, you compete. So for me, you have to encourage, because you learn more from losing than you do winning. The term, the L is for learning. And then what are we telling our kids? What are we telling society? Oh, that team's too good, so we're going to find a reason other than the fact they're just too good to play them. And then we're going to hide behind this narrative of what? They're too big, too fast, too strong? That's a bunch of BS. Stories like this are complicated, especially when the institutions behind the decisions refuse to elaborate or comment. I reached out to the MIAA several times, and I got no response. In his statement in response to the other schools pulling out of the league, Deacon Curtis wrote in part, quote, It should be noted that St. Francis Academy is the oldest Catholic school in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. If anything, historically, we should be credited with setting the standard by which a Catholic school in Baltimore should be measured. Instead, these nefarious elements seek to destroy rather than build. They seek to divide rather than unify. In fact, it's our uniqueness that makes us a great fit for the league and an asset to the city of Baltimore. We are deeply saddened that others will not see that." Unquote. Hey, 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 we ready to rock. Let's go. Finally on me, finally on three. One, two, three. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.
What's probably most discouraging is that the ones most affected by the decision, the players themselves, had no voice. Again, Donald Davis. I think there's been a ton of media coverage. Um, people have very strong opinions. Um, I, I think probably the one thing that, that was left out and probably the most difficult piece of it is the kids on the ground. You know, I, I think all of them were put in, in a really, really precarious situation. One is a lot of kids from every school, regardless of, of you know, what school they, they were from, they know each other. And that puts them in, in a really tough situation. So if, if, you know, I'm a kid from one school and, and people are saying, well, you, you don't want to play against that other school. I'm a kid that's on the team that didn't make that decision. And it's like, I'm just a 16-year-old kid trying to get an education and play football. So I, I think the kids themselves, and in some instances, were unfairly pit against each other by adults. And I don't, I don't know that that was deliberate by adults. I just think, you know, a lot of adults sort of drew their line in the sand and what they thought and their opinions. Uh, and as a result of that, the byproduct of that, the consequence of it, was young people were sort of on this side or on that side depending on where they went to school and that that you know it just I think that's difficult particularly for young people who aren't really making the decisions like no teenager decided how that was going to unfold you know every 14 year old teenager has a dream and so do ours Deacon Curtis and that the main difference is that other than the socioeconomic background of a good percentage of our kids we resemble every Catholic school in Baltimore you know I mean we we try to teach gospel values. We have nuns, religious priests, deacons on staff. We, we, we have mass frequently. It's, it's, we wear uniforms and we offer the same courses as everyone else, but it's that socioeconomic prejudice that they just can't seem to get past. And, um, uh, and it's hurtful because Baltimore has a painful history of that. The Archdiocese of Baltimore has a painful history of that. And um, you want to say that, well, you know, those were the sins of the past. But I was like, eh, that's the sins of last week. I'm, I'm not sure how much has changed. You know, I, I think uh, when you're raised Catholic and you love the Catholic Church so much, you, you, we make the mistake of idealizing it. And I really would think gospel values would outweigh any of our sinful nature. And unfortunately, that's just simply not true. You know, we were told by one school that we don't share their values. And I'm thinking, we're 60 years older than you are. Like, you know, how, how could you say that about us? And um, it's sad because our greatest critics have never even set foot in the school, have never even been here. But they seem to know more about it than I do on any given basis. But according to the administrators at St. Francis, all the drama surrounding the football season and who would play them and who wouldn't was all drama caused by parents and other adults not the kids. What I found was that there was a lot more common sense coming out of the students than the adults. Like I very much felt this was an adult battle. The kids still want to play each other. And, and when I would watch our students, even in basketball and other sports play, like the, these kids are friends, even though they go to different schools and they compete passionately. And that's what was missing because the only interaction we have with any other school is in sports. I mean, occasionally we'll do a service project together or something like that, but sports was what binds us together. And it was sad to see sports become so divisive, you know, and that uh, the things that were said about our school that just were mean-spirited. You know, we're the oldest Catholic school in Baltimore and no one honored that. They just, you know, called our kids thugs and 
you know, and our kids go to the same colleges that any other Catholic school sends their kids to, but we're academically weak. Yeah, our kids, uh, actually, ironically, they're cross-section of Baltimore. You know, many of them would not have access to a Catholic education, but right now we got a whole slew of middle-class parents who say without us they wouldn't have access to a Catholic education. You because know, even a family, you know, college-educated, both working, great income, still can't afford twenty-four, twenty-five thousand a year. You know, for two or three kids, those parents are coming to us saying, "But we can afford you." We're the last affordable Catholic school left in Baltimore City. So it's, um, or the Baltimore Archdiocese. The point of telling this story is that like most questions involving race, it's muddy and there aren't any clear cut answers. We were actually reluctant to tell this story because it's so divisive among Baltimoreans. Even among our production team, we couldn't all agree on how to see it. The history of racial discrimination and harm in this country is so deep and wounding that an incident with a football team can bring up strong emotions that seem somewhat unrelated or disproportional to the actual incident at hand. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal if other schools decide not to play against a powerhouse football team that creams them every time. But Deacon Curtis and others are convinced that this incident was all about race. And in meeting these guys and becoming friends with them, it was hard not to see it from their perspective. I think, um, you know, what I'm hopeful for is that, you know, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. That through that all, like, that you can't destroy God's plan for us to be one, you know, and that um, we're finding that, like, even at St. Francis, our student body's become a lot more diverse. You know, we've always been very careful to say that we're a historically black school, not a black school, not an all-black school, because everyone's always been welcome, you know, and I've never counted recently, but right now I'd say around, I think, 25 to 30 percent of our students are, would not identify as African-American, and that's awesome because we're starting to look like Baltimore. Our faculty's always look like Baltimore. Our kids will look like, you know, the rest of Baltimore. And all of those kids, even the 30% that doesn't identify as African-American, are very proud of the fact that we are a historically black school. Be sure to join us for the final episode of The Ark and the Dove, which focuses on the summer of 2020 and where we are today. I mean, it was the year of people that I was friends with, people that I am godmother to their children, people that I, you know, spent so much time with were saying horrible things. Yes, the Catholic Church is racist. I think that you didn't have to say that, Bishop, because you already proved it. I would question their understanding of sin and of theology, of, of, of the fruits of original sin, of concupiscence. The one thing that I think when it comes to systemic racism in America that I would say is, is also true of the Catholic Church is that I think we ought to approach it from a way of we're doing really well in this category and we can still fight for ways that we can improve. If I am to do what they sacrificed and prayed to see happen, I'm honoring people. Because if I went anywhere, I would still be in a racist society. The Ark and the Dove was written and produced by Edward Herrera and Jay Lampard with help from Louis Damani Jones. Editing and creative direction by Sarah Perla. Theme, outro music, and sound design by Jay Lampard. Additional music by Dietrich Goodwin and the St. Bernadine's Choir. Artwork by Tom Grillo. Thank you to the OSV Institute for Catholic Innovation and the Notre Dame Idea Center for their early support. 
Most importantly, thanks to the countless individuals willing to share their story for the making of this podcast. The Ark and the Dove is a production of Balthazar Media. For more information, please visit balthazarmedia.com.